0: Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt azure This episode is sponsored by Solveto. Continuous learning is the driver for success, growth, and well-being. Learn or expire. Keep your Azure skills up to date by acting now and go to solveto.fi/pro. I'm Tobias Immigrant and I'm back again with Uusi Roine. What's up? Hey Toby,
1: I've been hauling trees, and and the reason and the background for this is that we recently got a new plot of land about one hour away from Helsinki. I'm not sure why, but perhaps it was affordable at the time. And, and the idea was to perhaps build something there one day, because I'm now ready with the house, so why not build something more? But turns out that that when we, when we finalized the deal, there's a contract from the local government that stipulates that you have to apply for a building permit and start building in less than 12 months from the time of purchase. Hmm. So now we are in a hurry to clear the, the plot from trees. And I, I think I hold more than one hundred tree trunks over two days. So today I am not doing my home gym session.
0: So you're, so you're going to miss out on the home gym just because yeah, you lifted that. a couple of trees, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Sounds like a lot of work on my end. I also got some exercise. I went on a road bike uh, when seeing some friends over the weekend. Usually we take the car or if they live very close by, we just walk over, but this was like 40, 45 kilometers out. So the family took the car with the kids and I went on a 35 to 45 kilometer bike ride. No stress, easy way to get exercise and at the same time reach the destination and have a good time with our friends. I've been spending all my summer on the mountain bike. So I kind of forgot about my road bike for a while. So this is a perfect opportunity that I'll try to accomplish a little bit more when we go see friends. Uh, in our neck of the woods that you can combine exercise with having a good time with your friends and if they are good friends they will lend you the shower so you can actually have a shower and put on some clean clothes when you get there so super cool way to get exercise and um, also during the weekend because there's no other time for me to do that when we need to go see friends and and we're away all day so that's a great way to do it so i'm, I'm looking forward to trying this more so that's on my side So what are we talking about today, Yussi? So
1: in today's episode, we have invited a special guest to help us better understand what mission-critical workloads on Azure are all about. Uh, Welcome, Martin Simacek. Uh, Please let the audience know who you are before we dive into the actual topic.
2: Hello, everyone. Thanks for the nice introduction. I'm happy to be here with you. Uh, as was said, my name is Martin Simecek. I live in the Czech Republic. We don't normally hold trees in the Czech Republic, so it sounds very like romantic to me, but at the same time, I realize I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, I'm a developer, I'm a geek, I'm a gamer. Uh, I work for Microsoft. I've been there for almost 10 years on various technical roles. Uh, currently, I'm a senior software engineer in a global team which is called CAT, uh, that stands for Customer Architecture Team, and we work with the largest Microsoft customers, help them architect their solutions better. Our focus is on cloud. So my team's focus is especially on Azure, and one of the things my team has built over the past two years is the Azure mission critical guidance, which we will be talking about today.
0: All right, so. So talking about mission-critical workloads and guidance, I've, I've seen that there are some documentation around it, but I never really got the time to take a look at it. So like high level, what is this? What is a mission-critical workload and why would I care about it?
2: This is actually quite hard and difficult questions uh, question. We were thinking about a definition and how to properly define what uh, mission-critical, business-critical, or even like life-critical workload is. And turns out that it's different for every customer because every customer considers uh, something else mission critical for them. And then there are various levels of criticality. But uh, in our understanding and how we build this guidance, these are workloads which should be always on, basically never off, which should always run. You don't want to do an infrastructure update for eight hours and just bring your workload or application down and let your customers or users wait for eight hours. Or you don't want to be hit by an outage in Azure and don't work for even like two, three, five hours. So that's how we build it. So it's mostly about reliability. The tricky part of this obviously is cost, because when we discuss mission critical workloads with customers, they usually, the first thing they say is that, of course our workload is mission critical, it needs to run 100%, the SLA is 100%. But then they see the price which comes with this and they reconsider, they figure out, oh, so it's actually not that mission critical in the end. So as we start with customers, it's always about the discussion, like what is mission critical for you? and how we can make it more reliable.
1: Sounds sounds good. So, just to sort of get my bearing on this, anybody listening on this, can they sort of choose themselves that, well, something we run is mission critical, something else is not, and can they then perhaps adapt the guidance for Microsoft that, well, it's mission critical to us, but even then, we're still okay if we do a patch Tuesday once a month?
2: Exactly, and that's uh, one of the ideas to make our guidance kind of modular. So you can either read through it, you can take a look at code samples, and you can pick and choose what is relevant for you and what you want to adopt for your application. It's very rare that there are greenfield uh, developments where you build something from ground up. Usually you have an existing application and you want to make it better. And for that, you can just pick what you want
0: like I like the idea of this so you said that there might be um, like guidance around it or architecture or something we can take a look at so if if I now if I'm a customer and I want to learn more about this then uh, I think we mentioned that there there's some guidance around it so where do I go to find that guidance and what is like what can I dive into is there something I can deploy or is there like a reference architecture is there something tangible we can really take a look at to try and understand this
2: Yes, all of these. (laughs) So the easiest thing probably is to just go to Google and search for Azure Mission Critical. Uh, that should give you first hits on the Microsoft Docs. So we have published uh, guidance on the official Microsoft documentation. It is listed under the Azure well-architected framework. And then to accompany this, we also have GitHub repos with reference implementations. Uh, Currently, there are two, there's online and connected. We can get into details of those later. Uh, But these are really functioning, fully functioning, fully built implementations, which we coded and we poured all the recommendations and all the guidance which is written in docs into these implementations. In fact, fun fact, we built those in in reverse. So we first implemented everything and then we started putting together the documentation parts and it's still not finished. Uh, we've been working on this for two years and we are still publishing new articles to Azure Architecture Center. We have uh, nice videos coming in. So the content is still being built, uh, but it's already quite useful and quite nice.
1: I, I, I like the approach that you first Build the actual solution and then you go, well, let's do the documentation as well, because it might be helpful for people. So is this a new thing? Because well with Toby, we've spoken for a couple of episodes previously. We've spoken about the well architected framework. So so how does this the mission critical workload, how does it align with well architected framework?
2: I hope it aligns a lot uh, because uh, one of the key principles we had when building this was that we are not alone. This is not an isolated island uh, inside of Microsoft. There are other things being built already. And it helps that uh, most of our team was also involved in the well-architected framework and building some of that content. So we complement that. So we are using guidance from well-architected and we are adding something to it. We are making it more specific for these kinds of uh, workloads. And it also comes back to the motivation of this. Why does, it, why does this exist? And the idea is that we have a lot of guidance for customers, but it's scattered and it's very like not connected. We usually do architectural reviews and we just tell customers use health modeling and use automated deployments and you should do zero downtime deployments. But then they come back and they say, how do we do that? Do you have an example? And we didn't, we we didn't have anything. We just had the guidance because we know what's right. We just don't know how you can do it. So that's why we built this. So you can read in WAF, Worker architecture Framework, that health modeling is important. You can read it in mission critical, and you can also see it in action in mission critical. So that's how all of this is connected.
0: I, I really like this and I, I love the, the idea here to to build on what you see mentioned as well that you kind of built it first and you see that this is how customers do it and like these are the real challenges and then you kind of build the documentation around it. So it's not a documentation first approach where we say, well, this is a feature, this is something that we're describing, but instead like here are some real world scenarios that real customers are facing today and here's how we documented those real scenarios into tangible best practices and I, I really love this idea. Um, so, like, what are some of the challenges that we can help address using Mission Critical? And like, what does it take to run a Mission Critical workload? Because I, I know you mentioned it's about reliability, and we know in Well Architected Framework, like we talked about on the podcast before, we talked about the um, reliability pillar. There's a lot of guidance for building reliable workload and and reliable solutions. Now, how does that tie into what we're doing with Azure Mission Critical? And, like, what are the challenges around that? So, I know I put a lot of questions into the same here. So, kind of if we unpack that, um, you know, what does it take for us to run it? And is it just about reliability or is there something else?
2: Absolutely. Let's dive into it. Usually, we start with defining SLA, service level agreement. Uh, We prefer to do SLO, uh, service level objective. Uh, which is not doesn't have that contractual kind of feel to it. And it's really what kind of availability do you want to achieve with your application? And then we need to design around that. And we quickly realize when building our application that there's a limit. It, it, you can't really achieve 100% uh, in the cloud only because there are always components which can fail at one point. And you're actually limited at the global level in the end. So we're building around the SLOs, and then we dive into the architectural decisions, like the key architectural patterns, which we see as uh, crucial for mission critical workloads. And this is quite hard to do without a picture, because that's the point where we usually open up the architectural diagram. So I'll try my best to describe uh, the the main decisions we we made. Uh, So first of all, it's multi-region when you want to reach the highest possible availability you have to go multi-region so you have to have at least two you recommend three regions uh, where you deploy your workload your application and these two in our uh, design are considered stamps so we are using the deployment stamp pattern and each of the regions uh, in our case is a deployment stamp And these stamps don't have any dependencies between each other. They are completely separate. They have what they need inside of them. In our case, that's AKS Cluster, Event Hub for communication between pods, Uh, there's Key Vault, and there's a storage account which supports the Event Hub. So these things are considered the stamp. Uh, then there are global resources which are shared among stamps, and these preserve state. Because again, to achieve the highest availability, we need our stems to be stateless. We want to be able to remove them at any point in time and recreate them as we want. And global resources are there to hold state. In our case, it's Cosmos DB. Uh, there's also a container registry for which we deploy our clusters. Uh, and there's Front Door as the main router to individual regions and to individual stems. The other thing you will see when you look at our diagram is that we decided to make monitoring external to stamps. So each region has its own monitoring resources. We are using local analytics workspaces together with application insights, but they have a different life cycle from stamps. And the reason is that we realized very quickly that when you destroy a stamp, you would destroy your monitoring with it and you don't want that. So the monitoring is external stamps are ephemeral that's uh, how they how we call them so they can be destroyed at any time and the shared parts are in the on the global level which is replicated across all the regions where stamps are
0: this is a lot this is pretty cool and yeah wow it's a good word i I love this you described this very beautifully and i love this multi-region stamp-based architecture where you can just say let's stand up a new region Bam, it's standalone, but it still connects to the overall solution. You can bring a region down and that's okay. And the fact that you kind of disconnect the monitoring is also something I, I worked a lot with security and um, yeah, security monitoring and sh- security operations and things like that. One of the key things here is you always need to save the data, even if you destroy a, a solution, even if you destroy your subscription and, and you take that down. There's some type of data that you have to save and persist for X amount of years. Audit logs and security events and security logs, anything that you can kind of use to trace back, and that follows the same pattern here. That you kind of disconnect the, the logging mechanism from um, you know the stamp architecture or the, or that deployed solution. So when you when you destroy it and say we don't need this anymore or we need to stand up a new region but we don't need this one anymore, that is fully disconnected. So you can persist all of these things. I I love it. You've described this really well.
2: And one of the benefits we get this with approach is uh, zero downtime deployments. That's how we do our, our blue greens. But I'll get to it when we start with operations.
1: Sounds, sounds really good. So before we get to operations and the architectures and whatnot, two really quick questions on this. There's the documentation for mission critical, and and it sort of aligns and, and it's readily available, just like the well architecture framework. But if somebody thinking about deploying around mission critical, is there something they need from a GitHub repo as well? So is, the, is it possible to build something like this without having 200,000 lines of C-Sharp code somebody wrote in order to actually make this happen? So is this more guidance and best practices, or is there an underlying piece of code you need to run in order to achieve
2: this? Right, yes, uh, w- one of the misconceptions we sometimes hear is that uh, Azure Machine Critical is something you can just use as turnkey product or something you deploy to your subscription and suddenly you are machine critical. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, it's not a product, it's more like a framework and you can either read through it in, in all those learnings and then apply them to, to your whatever workload to, uh, is Uh, Or we have reference architectures, Uh, again, on docs. We are finalizing that now. These also have code snippets in them, which uh, are supposed to be kind of copy-paste, but not really, because you have to understand what they do. So it's more like, again, demonstration. And then the third piece is the GitHub repo. And you can, again, either take individual parts of it, really copy-paste code, or you can deploy the whole thing into your subscription and then tinker with it and play with it and see what it does and how it does things. So then you get a better understanding. Uh, What we actually do with customers is we sometimes use our code to kickstart their application. So we deploy it to their subscription and then we help them adopt it a little bit and adjust it to whatever they need to do. So that's another scenario. It can be a starting point. You don't need those thousands of lines, definitely. On the other hand, it helps because it gives you an understanding of how to build these things. And it's not trivial, like it's not easy. If this was easy, Azure would probably have a product for that already. It would be a checkbox somewhere, but unfortunately it's
0: not. If it would be easy, you wouldn't need this type of guidance. Uh, Exactly. Took a look at the guidance. It's very elaborate. There's a lot of things in there. And I, I love the way you describe how you do this as well that you can deploy this to a customer and then you adopt it and and kind of adapt the things you need. And it's something that I did a lot in the past as well, where I would take maybe a reference architecture from the Azure Architecture Center or something like that. It doesn't fit the bill for what I need to do, but maybe it has 65% of the pieces or it has 200% of what I need. So there's a lot more Then you can deploy that and then kind of remove the pieces you don't need or adjust accordingly. And then we create a new template space based on that. So we kind of didn't have to do everything ground up, but we could take what's already there. So that's what I see here as well. It's guidance coming with some really good reference implementations that, that you can take a look at those things on the GitHub, for example, and spin it up in your subscription. And when you do that, you can then just adopt it and adapt it uh, according to uh, to how we want to uh, make this work with our customer or in, in our landscape and then create new templates or new deployables in whatever way you want. And I think that's true for all the guidance and like all the documentations that that exist, that there is not a single piece of documentation or reference implementation that will solve 100% of your problems or or your challenges. It's always guidance that you have to kind of bring into your organization and then change according to the business requirements.
2: Yes, and I definitely have to add that we are not done. This is not the final set of implementations we have because uh, some customers use SQL, they don't use Cosmos DB. That's a completely like like flipped approach, like it's it's so different that we are actually building another reference implementation just for relational workloads and how to do machine critical on them. Uh, some customers use web apps instead of AKS. So that's that's an easier switch, uh, but still it's something else. So we are actually collecting these kinds of feedbacks and we will be preparing another reference implementations uh, around those scenarios as well.
1: All righty. So is mission critical mostly based and, and mostly exists for making applications more reliable or if I just want to have a virtual machine, which I feel is mission critical because it's running Excel for me, is it possible to apply this or the broad guidance for any, almost any sort of Azure workload? Or is it more about this specific, more specific use cases?
2: No, we don't support Excel. <laughs> uh, no, kidding. Seriously. Obviously, you can. Uh, absolutely. And uh, reliability is like the key tenant. The the first thing we started with, originally the project was called always on. So that tells you what was the priority. Even the code now, the projects are still called always on because that's like our internal thing. Uh, But uh, then what, in order to make this work, you need some kind of operational excellence and some kind of, uh, maturity within the organization around operations. It's not just deploying the app and just leaving it there. Uh, So we put very um, intense focus and uh, yeah, very intense focus on deployments and automation of everything. One of the key points of, of our guidance is that everything should be deployed automatically using pipelines. Nobody should be able to go to the portal and just change settings randomly, or do basically anything in the portal. So we have uh, Terraform definitions, uh, Terraform templates for deployments. We are using using Azure DevOps, uh, because at the time when we started with the project, GitHub Actions were not as far as mature as we need them. Uh, currently, we are actually exploring uh, GitHub as well for this. So the repo itself is on GitHub, the code is on GitHub, but it's deployed using Azure DevOps, and everything is automated. Uh, one nice thing that our this kind of approach uh, allows us to do is on-demand developer environments. So, As a developer, when I'm creating a code, I'm building new feature, I'm able to provision a full environment in the Cloud, which is exactly the same as production uh, functionally. It's scaled down, but it's functionally the same. It has the same components, it has everything production has. Uh, and I can use that for, uh, even for local development. If I want to connect to my Cosmos DB and test against that, I can do that. Uh, but then I can even run end-to-end tests using this kind of environment, which again, based on my branch, based on my GitHub bra- uh, Git branch, we generate a prefix, and then I can deploy my only my code, only my new code into this environment and run all all sorts of tests. And once I'm done with it, I can destroy it. It's it's out. And the main benefit is that it's mine. I own it. So I can do whatever I want with it. I can go to Key Vault and I can disable every protection there is, and I can just change keys and just do whatever I want with it because it will be destroyed eventually. This is one thing we often don't see customers do. What they often have is a shared development environment. So they have the infra deployed in one, two, three copies. And when I need to test something, I just need to send an email to everybody and just ask, hey, is dev3 available? I need to test my feature. And then I have no idea what's running there. I don't know if someone broke it, if someone installed a version of something which is not working anymore, I, I have no idea. So that's one of the key things and everybody loves that. Like when they see this, when they see how they how we deploy individual environments several times a day, uh it's just amazing and everybody wants that eventually but that's that's made possible only thanks to the fact that everything is code infrastructure is code code is code configuration is code and it's all automated
0: all right i, I really love this and like this redeployability i think we talked in some episode in the podcast about much of dev box and we we talked about other things like code spaces in the past where you where you can also spin things up and We've talked about provisioning infrastructure as code, and I I love seeing this come together to to kind of offer a package. So, I mean, I'm reading between the lines here that I I should not be right clicking in Visual Studio and say publish so I can deploy workloads directly to Azure. So I I get the point. So you also mentioned something around health modeling when we started this episode. And like, I I think this is something that ties into the operational topics that we're talking about now. So what is health modeling and why do I care about it?
2: Right. Health modeling is basically taking your basic uh, reporting and like performance monitoring and even like status monitoring to the next level by adding some kind of understanding to metrics. What we usually see is that customers have large dashboards which show charts and show numbers. And this is the number of incoming messages to Event Hub. And this is the number of outgoing messages of Event Hub. It's great, but is 100 okay or should this be 50? Sometimes someone who's looking at it every day for 10 years knows what good looks like, what healthy looks like. But when when someone else comes in, a new person comes in, they have to learn all these things and it's not very intuitive. And when crisis happens, you really have to be quick. You, may to, you need to make uh, fast decisions. Like, is this the right time to do a failover? Should we cut off one region now, or should we do it uh, uh, after some time or when this changes? Uh, so for that, we recommend building a health model, which basically defines what does it mean that the workload is healthy. And that can be a combination of various metrics. That can be that, the fact that, I don't know, uh, website's response is less, like average website response is less than 10 milliseconds. And also there are less than 50 messages in the queue. And also, I don't know, storage response is less than one millisecond, something like that. And all these things can report, can report into one place. They can inform the health model. And the representation of that model can be something we like to see as uh, traffic light so when it's green it's okay when it's amber or orange something might be wrong but it's still not critical and when it's red then you really need to take a look and in our guidance you will see a hierarchy hierarchical health model which basically puts individual flows within the application to the top and then behind those are individual services like application services which support them. So let's say adding a comment to a product in an eShop would be a flow, which is supported by the commenting microservice, which is supported by Cosmos DB, Event Hub, and storage. And if, for instance, Cosmos DB doesn't work, it will turn red, which in turn will turn this commenting service red, which will turn the whole flow red because we know at this point that it doesn't work. And you can just look at it for one second and you immediately know what what is wrong and that you probably need to fail over if you don't want your customers to not be able to post comments. So this is health modeling and this is the visual representation of that. In terms of uh, implementation, we have a Grafana dashboard, uh, which is deployed separately. It's again, made redundant and highly reliable and that's using data from log analytics. We have custom queries, we have custom functions, which look at the various metrics and then decide if it's red, uh, orange, or green, what's like the final status. And all of that is implemented, all of that that is uh, open source and available. The reason why we chose Grafana was that Azure Monitor at the time didn't support all we needed because we are using custom visual, we are using the, the the graphical model, which was something like that was not possible with Azure Monitor. It still isn't, even though it, it's getting better over time. And final point to this, I mentioned log analytics. One of the key parts of our guidance is that you should not have one central log analytics uh, workspace into which all parts of the application report because again, that hinders your reliability because you're creating single point of failure. Uh, that's why we have uh, Log Analytics Workspace in each of the stamp locations, or well, actually each stamp has its own, and we have one global, and then we are using union. We are basically using cross uh, workspace queries to put together results from all of them and surface them as a single pane of glass. It's complex but it's the only way how to make this work at the top reliability wow i'm 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 looking at
1: the architecture image you have on microsoft docs and and everything we've discussed will be in the show notes as links and it's amazing when i'm listening to you on the complexity and on the depth of of things that 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 you and your team have built out for this it it makes me feel stupid because if i'm looking at an architecture like this i go mm, okay it looks quite simple i can build this and then when i hear about the thinking and the thought procedure and and, and the elements that you built in there you sort of start to realize well there's a couple of moving parts that i did not think through beyond the basic deployment so looking at the baseline architecture uh, you mentioned the aks cluster you mentioned the stamp based architecture the, the global elements and the regional monitoring, would this be sort of the starting point for an organization when they want to start with this? Because I'm reflecting this with the enterprise landing zone, which is part of the well-architected framework. And it seems that whenever I, I visit with a customer these days, somebody will pull out a physical piece of paper, you know, those, those massive papers, and they've printed out the enterprise landing zone, and they go, "We'd like to implement this, please. How how many hours will it take for you?" And and I'm thinking about the baseline architecture now. Is this the starting point, and is is this where companies sort of start their journey with the mission critical workloads? Uh,
2: as I said before, you might remember, we are not an island, uh, so we are connected to the WAF framework, but also we consider enterprise scale landing zones, and mission critical falls into this as basically one of the workloads or one of the pieces which can be deployed as part of the the landing zone so uh, that's called in our reference implementation that's called the connected version and that means that we consider existing resources and we consider existing vnets virtual networks uh, existing security rules or policies and all of that or even subscriptions and we basically plug into all of that so there's an option to specify your vnet range you can specify ip addresses and if you do that we just don't create them for you we just consider them existing and we just plug into them and uh, If you can uh, imagine the enterprise uh, landing zone image, like the the whole architecture diagram, it starts at the top with the main management group, and then it's like this huge tree with uh, branches at the bottom or roots, let's say. (laughs) Uh, So we can be one of those. We can be one of those branches or one of those roots where you just deploy, this is mission critical workload. And next to it can be another one. And next to it can be a different one. Uh, And it's all pluggable. So it should be compatible. Uh, Sometimes we see requests, requirements to do that, so that's when we take the opportunity to improve the compatibility, but currently it it should work. At the same time, when starting with this, when trying to get into mission critical, uh, we recommend going with online. So That's the the main, the primary uh, implementation we have. That's where all the innovation goes first because it's easier, uh, because you don't have all the network constraints, uh, uh, Connected also is using private endpoints exclusively, so everything is private. You, it's not reachable from the internet except from uh, through Azure Front Door. Whereas online is kind of exposed, not fully, but it is like more free. So we recommend going with online when you're starting. There is a getting started guide. It's a basically a step-by-step tutorial. You can just follow that. You can. It tells you what commands to run or where to click and you can deploy it to your own subscription and just play with it. And when you're ready, you can take basically the same thing and deploy it as connected to your landing zone. So it is compatible. It's different. It's uh, one of the pieces in landing zone, but it is compatible. Really,
1: really good. Toby, one day what we will be doing is I will call you over Teams. We'll keep the video on and we start deploying this and perhaps record that, and it will be a super long or super short episode, depending on how we do.
2: <laughs> no, <that's> yeah, let's do it. a heads up, one of the, the full deployment of the infrastructure takes anywhere between 45 to 50, 60 minutes, <laughs> but uh, otherwise it, it should be done in like th- two hours total.
0: It's going to be a great and, episode. <laughs> yeah,
2: indeed. I am,
1: I'm fully satisfied now because I, I sort of have this, eagerness to to start going through all the documentations and the GitHub repos definitely to to sort of tinker around with with the deployment. Uh, Toby, any more questions, thoughts on this one?
0: I I think I got a lot of information here. Uh, This has been really great. And I definitely need to go brush up on the documentation around this, take a look at these reference implementations and and like the machine critical uh, online on GitHub. Please do,
2: and uh, I also would like to ask anyone who plays with this and looks into our repos and also our documentation articles. Everything is open source, even like Microsoft Docs is open source. You can click the edit button and get into the repo, propose changes or create issues. Please do that. We are very open to feedback. We are working with the repo every day. So even if you want to create a pull request, we are more than happy to take a look, Uh, but even just issues with feedback uh, are fine. And we would really appreciate people using this and giving us feedback.
1: Sounds sounds really good. I'll, I'll be sure to go through this and if I spot anything I could add, which I doubt, I'm, I'm sure I will post oh, the, an There issue. will
2: be typos for sure, at least. <laughs> <laughs> all, all
1: righty. So we have the, the last thing, the unexpected question. So Martin, I will ask you the unexpected question. Are you ready?
2: Well, do I have a choice? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Let's do it.
1: All righty. Here it goes. Can you fold a fitted sheet? And if you can, what is your secret?
2: Right. Well, the secret is we don't fold it <laughs> we we have a transparent box in our house with uh, where all the sheets go and what we do is usually we just make a big chunk uh, of fabric out of it a big <laughs> ball and just stuck it there and, and it works <laughs> usually there's no need to iron it when because when you put it on the bed it stretches itself which is the the huge benefit of this so Is that a technique? I don't know, but uh, that's how we do it. It's
0: the same technique that we use in this house. So it's definitely (laughs) a technique. (laughs) Yeah, I've been been sort of trying
1: to deploy that sort of a technique in our house, but no, they have to be folded. And there's some sort of a model that I've yet to learn after 10 years of folding them. I was hoping to get it, but perhaps this model is better. You can try.
2: There are a lot of benefits (laughs) to it. It takes like two seconds to do it
1: exactly the time savings already thank you martin for for visiting us thank you toby uh we hope you join us next week as well